together. Um, thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for your word and the privilege it is to be able to study it and discuss it freely. We pray that your spirit be with us this morning as we go through this last section in Exodus and that uh, we could see the glory of Christ this morning portrayed in this passage. We ask for hearts that are open, ears that hear, minds that can comprehend the beauty and the excellencies of Jesus. And we pray that this drives us not only to love Him more, but to love each other more and rightly, to display His worth, to display um, His work in us. And in uh, doing so, we display our hope in what's to come when all things will be united permanently and um, in right standing with you. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Exodus 40. And today is our last discussion uh, on a particular text. In Exodus, I plan on doing uh, one more lesson on Exodus next week, just kind of as a wrap-up. But this is our last, our last text. It's a big deal. Um, and we're going to start in verse 17. Uh, we've seen so far, last time that we were together, um, we saw the pieces to the tabernacle had been made, and they had been presented, and Moses had accepted them as representative of God, had blessed the people for the, for the pieces that they had made. They followed the commandments of God to the T, and everything was ready, but it still needed to be assembled. And so God then commanded, after accepting the pieces, the finished work of the pieces, he then said, okay, put it together. And he gave them a specific time to do it, the first day of the first month of their calendar. That was the beginning of them to, uh, to erect the tabernacle, put the furniture into place, and to set apart the people for the task of ministering in the tabernacle. We now look at the completion of the assembly and how God responds when it's all completed. Let's start in verse 17. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the, t of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it. 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, which Moses, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Let's stop there for a second. (coughs) What do you see repeated again and again and again and again in this passage? The obedience of the mediator. How many times does it say, as the Lord had commanded Moses? Seven. You counted as we went. You're so good. You knew where I was going. Why? Why would he repeat this seven times? There's a completeness issue here. Seven often is used as a symbol of completeness. How does it end? It's a last statement in that section. He finished the work. What does this remind you of, this whole picture? What does it remind you of? Crucifixion. The crucifixion. Okay, how? Well, the finishing of the work. Right, right. Yeah, the finishing of the work is that, is that it is finished declaration from the cross. You have that, that kind of idea. Does it remind you of something maybe earlier? <coughs> creation. Creation. Why, why would it remind you of Creation. So you've got a, 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 a time period of each thing being set up, being made, being created, and God rested on the seventh day when he had finished the work. So that reminds you of the, the whole creation narrative. And we had talked last week, uh, last time, about that same idea, right? That <clears throat> the making of the stuff was also a hint or a nod to the language that was used in the creation narrative. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it showed a new beginning, right? It, it had that kind of idea of a new beginning. And here we have it again, a new beginning. Incidentally, um, well, who's doing the commands? Who's fulfilling them here? It says Moses. Man, it's a lot of work for Moses. What's going on here? Moses did all that the Lord commanded? Yeah, he's the representative. He's the mediator, right? So the work that's getting done, he's directing it, he's in charge of it, and he's responsible for it, and he's named. He gets the credit for it too, right? He's the representative for the people. He gets the credit because he leads them. Um, All right. Look at verse 34. What happens when he finishes the work? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a great way to end. If it just stopped there, <laughs> if their journey just stopped there, what a great way to end. What does this show? What do we have here? <clears throat> does verse 34 remind you of any other scene in Exodus? The cloud comes down and fills the tabernacle. Where else have we seen this cloud? On the mountain. Way up high. Separate. Apart from the people. In fact, they were at the base of the mountain, right? Uh, and running the other way with their heads turned around going, don't let them talk to me. Don't let them talk to us anymore. We can't bear it. You go talk to God. The glory of God on the mountain with thunder and lightning, very, very frightening, all that stuff going on. That same glory, when he was separated from Israel, now comes down and resides with his people in their very midst in this tabernacle. Heaven cloud comes down into something of earth, a tent. The people couldn't touch the mountain, but here he resides with his people in their very midst. And this is what smart folks normally call Manuel Principle. You ever heard of this? Emmanuel Principle? We sing it at least once a year. God with us. God with us. That's exactly right. This is the picture. What is unattainable, what is awe-inspiring and fearful, comes down and cloaks himself in a tent. Something, I mean, I'm sure it's a very ornate tent. I'm sure it's very elaborate and lots of, apparently a lot of skill went into it. It's beautiful. It's a tent. It's a humble thing. A very humble thing. It's in the desert with a bunch of goat herders. And I'll just, I have personal experience with this. Goats stink. They do. And you get around them and you stink. And something high and lofty, someone high and lofty, the glory of God in majesty dwelling with a bunch of goat herders in a tent? How humble. And it says it filled the tabernacle. That word there, the smart folks tell us in the Hebrew, is an ongoing, it means an ongoing situation. It wasn't just a one-time, hey, this is a cool thing, great, thanks for the tent. He lived there. He filled it and did not leave their presence. When did it leave? When did it lift? What was supposed to happen? 
when they were to move, the glory lifted and led them. Right? He's with them continually and he goes with them as they travel. Now, what does this mean here that Moses was unable to enter the tent of the meeting? Is that a change in status for Moses? Is he now no longer the prophet of God because he can't, he can't now enter the tabernacle at the filling of the, ta- of the tabernacle? Does that change? Some people have argued that. I don't find that convincing. Um, there's another place um, where the glory of God fills the, the temple. And it says it was so huge, such a big deal, that the priests could not stand to minister in the, ta- in the temple. Well, they didn't stop being priests. That office didn't cease. So the idea here is that this is such a great manifestation of the glory of God that even Moses, who was in the presence of God on the mountain, couldn't stand it. What does that tell us about the times that he could? God is gracious and condescends to allow Moses in his presence in that time. And this shows, hey, this is my grace to you to allow that with this theophany, this expression of the presence of God. Um... So as uh, as they depart from and in thirty five verse thirty five repeats verse thirty four by the way it makes it clear in the repeating of it that this is certainly Almighty God who is inhabiting this lowly tent in the desert. So as they depart from Mount Sinai, it's the glorious cloud of Yahweh's presence that leads them. When He lifts from the tent, they set out. When he didn't leave the tent, they stayed. The way the language reads, it shows that this was a repetitive action. And they saw this, it says, throughout all their journeys. And we know, because we've read further than Exodus, how long were their journeys? Forty years. And this was the pattern that they saw. That they saw this. I mean, like I can see Jacob here in the front row, they saw the cloud of God go up and down in the tent and lead them. They saw the fire at night when they rested. And what happened to them? They blew it. We'll see that in numbers if we ever get there. They blew it. Uh, so the atheist says, if God would lift this podium and make it float across the you know, room, I will then believe that he exists. No, you won't. What does that tell you about the human heart? In Adam all die. Right? We, we, we start from a position of, of enemies of God. Even the, the most obvious evidence that we would consider obvious evidence, we reject it because we want to be our own God. And time and time again, when Jesus did amazing things, when he raised Lazarus, right. many believed, many plotted to kill him. It, it was the same evidence that they saw, mm-hmm. but it was the state of their heart. Right. I will say, though, again, if we ended Exodus right here, what a lovely picture. Very obedient. There goes the cloud. Let's go. Whee! There it is. It's beautiful. And there are several themes uh, in this narrative that, that get teased out in the rest of Scripture. And um, 
I want to I want to hit a couple of them. I just want to hit one today, and then and then next week we'll we'll look at another. But probably the most obvious of 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 all of them, I think, is is God's glory inhabiting that humble desert tent. The glory they had seen on the mountain that had caused them to run away comes down from his exalted place to dwell in a tent. He commits himself to them and lives humbly. Isn't that astounding? I just find that incredible. David comments on this. I dwell in a house of cedar and God dwells in a tent? He's ashamed of it, really. It's like, why would you dwell so humbly? The cloud, we've talked about this before. The cloud is a picture. What, what do you associate with clouds? Where are clouds? In the sky, heavens. It's kind of a, a, a nod to the heaven we can see and the heaven we can't see is, is the idea there. What's the tent? The tent is earth, right? The tent is the stuff that they made out of goat skin, out of gold and silver and brass and bronze and all this stuff. You see here, heaven comes down and unites with a thing of earth. During their journey, I can't think of any time, maybe you can, I, I couldn't think of any time when the glory of God from this point forward in Israel's journey, and really in their in their in their in their time in the land of Canaan, I can't think of a time when the glory of God is not associated with either the tent, the tabernacle, or the temple. Can you? I mean, I I can't think of it uh, apart from. I mean, there's some there's some miracles that happen, like with Elijah and those kinds of things. But but generally, if you're going to go to the presence of God, if you want to commune with God. It's at the tabernacle or the temple. Yes? Is that? Um, they're united. If judgment happens, it proceeds from the tent. It's at the tent that they commune with God. And there's unity between this tent or the temple and the glory of God. And, and this is an association that was even understood in Jesus' time, right? He says to the Pharisees, um, and I'll paraphrase in East Texas version, um, We'll call it HCSB, the HCSB. Um, morons, if you swear by the temple, you're also swearing by him who resides in the temple, who lives in the temple, right? He associates, you, you don't separate the two. They're together. Now, Jesus is very interesting. He would make that association, don't you think? Because the tabernacle and the glory of God in it is a picture, is it not? It's a picture of things united. Things in heaven and things on earth. Um, but it's still a picture. John 1. Turn to John 1. God, go there. You just have to. John 1. John begins his gospel with this incredible 18-verse prologue that is just a thing of beauty. But we'll start in verse 14. And the Word, who's the Word? Jesus. And always a good answer in Sunday school. And, he's, and he begins with it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's your Trinitarian seed right there in the New Testament. And the Word became flesh 
this word that existed from time eternity past with God came down and became flesh and dwelt among us. That word there, dwelt. Uh, some translate it and tabernacled among us. And we seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, who's it referring to there? The only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is the only God? Jesus. Je Again, always a good answer in Sunday school. What is John saying? Who is Jesus? He's God. And he's God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, but why? Why would heaven come down and unite with things on earth? Why would that happen? There are a couple of reasons. Well, there's more than a couple of reasons. We'll address a couple today. For his full humanity. We'll start there. Jesus obeyed for us where Adam failed and disobeyed. He had to be fully human to represent us by his obedience. A lot of times we spend uh, talking about the cross, and we should, but we forget that there were 33 years before the cross, right? In which he was obedient to the will of the Father. From, from a child onward, he was obedient to the will of the Father. And he did that as a representative for us. Adam blew it. Adam disobeyed God on our behalf. Thank you. Uh, Christ obeyed God on our behalf. Thank you. Right? He had to be man to do it. To be a representative for us, he had to be a man to do it. Like Adam and Eve tempted in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. This um, Adam and Christ comparison is made by Paul in Romans. Look, Romans 5, 18 and 19, I'll just read it for you. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as the one man's disobedience, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam, as the second Adam. He makes that very clear comparison. It's one of the reasons I, I think we have to fight for the historicity of Adam. He had to be a real man in history for that comparison to be made. Paul makes it. Some are fighting against that. Some are waffling and getting squishy on it. 
I think from a gospel standpoint, we have to, we have to maintain that. So Christ had to be fully man to represent us by his obedience. Another reason, second reason we're going to address today, Jesus came to save men, not angels. Right? He had to be made like us to be a sacrifice for us. Does that make sense? Um, if he had not been made a man, if he had not been a man, he could not have died and paid the penalty we faced. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Think about that. In every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. If he were not fully man, he could not have been a right substitute for us. His blood for ours. His blood for ours. So his body is made to live for us. His blood was spilled to die for us. But how could a man do that? Um, if In saying that, how, how can the blood of one man substitute for the sins of many men? It can't. It can't. I... Uh, sin. I know it's a shocker. I, I just, I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent with you. I sin. It happens. I did this morning. Ask Tammy. She'll tell you all about it. I'm sure. But the, uh, I, I get angry unrighteously. I, I do all kinds of goofy things that are sinful. I can't save myself. I've got nothing to offer. I've already blown it. I can't save myself. If I were, by some sheer force of will that I don't know where it would come from, but, but some sheer, uh, sheer force of will, able to live a perfect life such that I could be a sacrifice for somebody, my life is only worth one person's life. Any takers? My life is only worth one. I can't die for more than one. Even if I could do it, I couldn't die for more than one. Only infinite God could bear the full penalty for the sins of those who would believe in him. A finite man just would not do. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Think about that late at night. One law... You're accountable for all of it. Why is that? That seems mildly unfair, don't you think? I mean, come on. Why is that? James is one of those legalists, I guess. Why would that be? It devalues the law if you, uh, <clears throat> if you make exceptions like that. Devalues the purity. Devalues the purity of the law. And we studied the Ten Commandments for a while. 11 weeks from what I recall. What are, what are those? It's, we call them Ten Commandments. They're testimonies. Testimonies to what? To the nature of God. So, 
I'm created to be an image bearer. I'm created to display his goodness, his glory, his nature to the rest of creation. And in doing so, I honor God and show his worth, right? If I say, yeah, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I, 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 don't, I don't want to obey you here. But I do all these others. But here, I'm, I don't like you here. The testimony to you here just isn't worth me emulating. Right? In fact, by my action, I'm going to say, you're not worth much here. I'm, I'm God here. What is that? What is that? That's pride. That's unbelief that the testimony is true. That is a rebellion, a cosmic order. <laughs> Saying that the creator of the universe is not God here is rebellion against his very core nature. That's why one of these is, it's not because, you know, it's a true-false test in which, you know, one, that's not how it works. It's violation of any of it calls into question the nature and the value and the worth of God. If James 2.10 is right, and it is, breaking just one commandment of God is sufficient to warrant hell for eternity. Click through them for a moment. Have you ever told a lie? Everybody, if you're, if, you're, if you're saying no, you're not being honest and you're lying yeah, right, right now. Just, ha, have you ever hated someone? Because Jesus said, say not to murder, but if you hate in your heart, then it's same as murder, right? Ha, have you ever stolen something? The paper clips at work count. Have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? Jesus said, don't commit adultery, but I say if you lust after a woman in your heart, same as committing adultery. Not that the consequences be the same, but the value of the sin is the same. It's a breach of the nature of God. <clears throat> How many times? One of them, eternity in hell, because of the, the worth and value of who God is. One of them. How many times have you done it? How many times have I done it? I did a calculation one time. Let's say I sin like $200, $200, 200 times, $200 worth, God, 200 times a day, 200 eternities a day, basically. And I just calculated the, the, the life that I've lived. And if we just did a ball, you know, spitballing it 200 times, because, you know, I'm sure that's all there is. That's a lot of eternities in hell. There aren't enough eternities in the universe for me to spend to pay that back. Uh, now add Tammy in the mix, and my kids in the mix, and so on, and so on, and so on, and Tyler in Texas, Texas. And then, throw in Massachusetts, it's way over. So it's just this whole thing. I'm sorry. I could not, I could not, uh, could not stand by and let that not, not be said. All right. Um, it's by God's standard which is the only one that matters, I cannot bear the penalty due for my own sin, much less anyone else. A one-to-one -one substitution of a righteous man for a sinner like me would just pay for me. 
So if Christ is not God and just a man, a righteous, a good man, who would he pick? It wouldn't be me. John, Peter, Paul. But Christ, the Word who was with God from eternity past, is not limited to substituting for just one man. In fact, every sinner who repents and trusts in the finished work of Christ only increases the demonstration of His worth as a substitute for us. Every sinner who repents increases and magnifies the worth of who Jesus is. A second reason that Christ had to be God. Fully man, fully God. From start to finish, Scripture teaches that we cannot save ourselves. No creature could save us. Only God himself can. Point number two is salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 uh, Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the ESV. Salvation is from the Lord, NASB. Salvation comes from the Lord, the NIV. The ASB says it, I actually like it best, uh, in this instance, salvation is of the Lord. It only proceeds from Him. It is His and His alone. And you see that in the deity of Christ. I can't save myself. I need a Savior. More than that, we need a Savior. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, we have no salvation. If you deny the deity of Christ, you don't have Christianity. Uh, 1 John, which we went through on Wednesday nights. 1 John 2.23 No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 2 John 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. God, in His grace, has given us Himself. Heaven came down and dwells in human flesh. And notice I said dwells. When He died, when He rose, he didn't shed the human nature. For eternity, heaven and earth will be united in the person of Christ. The glory and the tent are one. <clears throat> Jesus did not give up his humanity after his death and resurrection. He appeared to his disciples as a man after the resurrection. Remember, he, they... they they touched his hands, they touched his side, they touched his feet. He ate with them, he walked with them, um, he cooked fish. After he was taken up, the angel said he would come again in the same way, Acts 1.11. Jesus said to them in Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. The supper that we will celebrate today. It's an expression, a remembrance 
heaven came down to dwell in the tent. That Christ, fully God, fully man, in his body lived the life we should have lived, and in the spilling of his blood died the death we should have died. And we eat it, and we drink it, trusting in that finished work and hoping in his return, his bodily return, for we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. Heaven and earth united in him and we in him. Um, Revelation 21, 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. His plan, his purpose, his accomplishment, and his future accomplishment is to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So where does this leave us? How do we wake up tomorrow morning with that understanding in our heads? What difference does it make, to quote a famous politician? The difference is this. If I've been renewed and transformed into the image of Christ, if I've been given his spirit as a seal for the hope that's to come, if the nature of God, the the grace of God, the Spirit of God resides in me. Heaven and earth are being united in me as an expression of the glory of God. I need to be living like it. Right? The, the earth that I'm in is a dead, dead body, Paul says. It's pulling me back to the dust. The heart that I have in Christ longs to look like him, longs to image him rightly. So there's tension. But if it's an already seated him with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, 2, 2, uh, and, and yet I'm, who wretched man that I am in this body of death, Romans 7, if that's going on, but I'm seated with him, and yet I still sin. But I'm seated with him, and yet I still, yes. There's tension there. The longing is to fight. The longing is to, is to not uh, give in to the distractions of where we're going, what the deal is, where we're headed, what, what's the hope. The longing is to display that he dwells among us by how we love one another. Right? Isn't that 1 John? And the rest of the New Testament? <laughs> That's how it looks. Because he has united in himself heaven and earth and is calling us to display that unity individually and corporately, we wake up thinking differently than, I really need coffee. We may need coffee. Coffee's good. Coffee's a wonderful thing. But more than coffee, I need Jesus, right? I need you every hour. Is that the old hymn that says that? Because in him are the riches of wisdom, are the riches of knowledge, 
uh, this power that works mightily in me when I don't want to do things. God works in me to be able to fight not imaging him rightly. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is where it's headed. The bridge has been made. There is assembly going on, like we talked last time. There's assembly going on of the true tabernacle, the true temple of God. We are now in the age of assembly. Christ has done the pieces. He's done the work. The things have been bought. They're manufactured. They're ready to go. We are now in time of assembly of the temple. That's where we are. And when the end of this age happens, as we assemble rightly, gathering new believers, building up each other in love, as Ephesians says, at the end of that, you see, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. They will be a glorious, again, new beginning of the consummation of all the plan that has been for the fullness of time, building in Christ the cornerstone and now being built the temple of God and the church based on Christ and what he's done. That's pretty incredible. Any comments on that? No. All right. I will pray. Is it time to go? No, really. Father, um, we take a teaching like this, the unity of Christ, his two persons, and not two persons, one person, two natures of deity and humanity. And teasing that out and figuring out how that works is a great mystery. There have been errors all over the place on how that works. that his body was human and his mind and his soul were deity and that there were two persons in the same body or that there's a mixture of his deity and his humanity to come to become some third type of being thank you for the clarity that you gave men in the past in their study of scripture to see that the nature of Christ, although a mystery, is taught very clearly in Scripture that he is both God and man in one person. Fully God, fully man, without mixture or a lesser degree of either. It's a mystery to us how that works. But what an amazing gift Because Ephesians also says that you put all things under his feet and made him his head over all things and gave him as head to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And as we are in this age of assembly of the temple, and we're working because he's working in us, Jesus is erecting the tabernacle. Jesus is putting the furniture into place. Jesus is setting apart those who will serve in the tabernacle.
He's our representative. He's our head. And he is working. And we are working under him and in him. Father, make us faithful stewards of such a great gift. That as we work, we work toward loving one another with the mindset of imaging God, the unity in the Godhead. We fall woefully short. But we pray that by your Spirit you would help us to increase righteousness, increase mercy, increase joy and love and peace that we share with one another. We can't do it apart from you unless you fill us. We're just humble tents. We need you every hour. Thank you for the gift of this book, Exodus. Thank you for the picture of the glory of God that darts the book and ends the book. And the glory that is shown to be faithful to his people. That we can trust you and the finished work that you've done in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.